How's everybody doing? Good. Good? I wasn't nervous until they put the microphone on me. Uh, I teach in here uh, for the kids on Sunday mornings, so it's a little bit familiar territory. And uh, Pastor Tim was supposed to teach tonight, and uh, he's being a slacker. But uh, it's not the first time I've had to fill in for him. We, uh, back years ago, we did um, quite a few mission trips to Guatemala. And I was heading a lot of that up, and I had been a few times, and I finally, uh, I was going with other groups from other churches, and I finally got a group together to go from North Clay, and I got Pastor Tim to agree to go, and I thought, oh man, all the pressure is off. If anything needs to be preached or spoken or, you know, I got the, the big guy with me, and uh, we got into Guatemala, and we had, the highlight of our trip was we were going to be able to uh, go into a high school and go classroom to classroom and share the gospel with students. And the night before, about two in the morning, I woke up, and I could hear somebody throwing up. And it was Pastor Tim. So I ended up having to step into his place the next morning to do the do the high school stuff. So uh, keep, keep him in your prayers. I know he's back home and is doing better. Uh, I think Brad told me he goes back to see the doctor's... Uh, tomorrow, maybe get his staples out. Uh, we're going to look at 1 Timothy tonight, and I have to take my Kindle out because the metal will, in the cover will keep it turned off. Ugh. Okay, so 1 Timothy, uh, who wrote 1 Timothy? Paul. Paul, Paul was the author. Of course, it's a letter written to Timothy. Paul uh, is an apostle. What does, that, what does that mean? What does it mean to be an apostle? Someone that had seen the resurrected Jesus in his human body. Yes, that's part of it. It means messenger. Uh, you can think of Paul and the 12 disciples were all considered apostles. Uh, like you said, they were eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus. And they were chosen by him to take the gospel to the rest of the world. Now, Paul wrote 13 books in our New Testament. First uh, and Second Timothy and Titus are considered pastoral letters. And they were written to the individuals. And um, the majority of his books were written to churches. I mean, you can think of Ephesians and Philippians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians and so on. But um, I want to talk about Paul for just a minute. Um, who was Paul? What was Paul's background? Um, when we first meet up with Paul, he's called Saul. He was Saul of Tarsus. And he was a Jew. He was a Pharisee. He was a Roman citizen. And he was highly educated. He called himself a Pharisee of Pharisees. Uh, but he wasn't really what you would uh, con consider to be an aristocrat. Uh, Paul was a working man. He was a tent maker by trade. Uh, when we first encounter him in Acts, he was persecuting Christians in the early church. Um, he was present when Stephen was stoned to death. And I, I believe he was holding their cloaks as they, as they stoned Stephen to death. So, Paul was traveling from Jerusalem to Damascus. And this is what they refer to as the Damascus Road experience. Uh, he was on his way to arrest Christians. When he was struck down, he was blinded by this bright light. And Jesus spoke from the light and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul answers, who are you, Lord? That's, a, that's an interesting response. Like he answered his own question there, right? <laughs> uh, 
Paul was the one who was arrested that day. Now, if we're looking at our timeline, this is probably four to seven years after Jesus' resurrection. And Paul became the apostle to the Gentiles. Um, Now, as we're reading through that, and Brad mentioned this in his sermon the other day, talking about the book of Judges. And he's talking about how when we read through there, um, I think he said that that time period in Judges covers about 350 years. But as you're reading through there, you kind of think, well, these things just happen one right after the other. And you don't think about it uh, being over such a large span of time. Well, Paul, before he went on his first missionary journey, the time between the Damascus Road and, and then is about 14 or 15 years. So Paul had spent this time um, with the other apostles, with the believers, and the Lord was training him up and preparing him for what he had to do. So on Paul's first missionary journey, he's traveling through a city called Lystra. And this is where he first encounters Timothy. So Timothy's a young boy, and Paul leads him to Christ. And as we, and when we read in 1 Timothy, uh, Paul refers to Timothy as my true child in the faith. So Paul led Timothy to Christ. Timothy's a young boy. Timothy was raised by his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois. Now these were devout Jewish women and they did a really good job of teaching him the Old Testament scriptures. So then we move forward and around the year 50 AD, Paul returns to Lystra on his second missionary journey. And he recruits Timothy to accompany him in his ministry. Now, Timothy's father was Greek. And Paul is going to carry him with him. And as you can imagine, as the early church is getting started, you've got a lot of interaction with the Jews. And Paul's not trying to invoke any kind of controversy. So he has Timothy circumcised prior to taking him with him. So... Timothy accompanies Paul, and he was Paul's right-hand man moving forward. Um, Also on the second missionary trip, Paul starts up this small church in Ephesus. He left uh, Priscilla and Aquila there to tend that startup church, which probably was meeting, uh, I wouldn't think of it as, as... you know, a building, a setting like we have, it would be more like meeting in people's homes and that type of thing to to grow the numbers of the church. But Priscilla and Aquila were left to attend that church. And what do we know about Ephesus? Ephesus was the capital city in that region, in Asia Minor. Um, It was a big city. It was considered a port city, even though it was really... It was three miles off the coast, but it sat right in the mouth of a big river there. So it, was a, it was a, had a really big harbor, and you had four different trade routes that ran through the city. So you can imagine, you got lots and lots of people coming and going, people from all different countries. Uh, it was a big educational center. But the, the thing that Ephesus was most known for at that point in time is this huge, magnificent temple that was built to the goddess Diana. Um, so they worshipped this false, false god. You had false teachers there. That temple was so magnificent it was considered one of the, at that time one of the seven wonders of the world. So Paul makes his third missionary journey and when he came back to Ephesus he stayed there. He stayed there and he pastored that church and grew that church for three years. And I believe this was the, he stayed in Ephesus longer than any other one place that he went. So this was a very important uh, church for him. Now, Pastor Tim uh, was preaching through Acts not too long ago. And you may remember, he um, had a sermon where he talked about uh, Paul was detained and he was being delivered to Rome. And along that journey, they had stopped, I think in Malta. I'm not sure about that, but the, um, 
as they stopped, Paul was close to Ephesus and he sent somebody to go get the elders of the church at Ephesus so that he could meet with them. And we're going to look at that, at that uh, meeting here in a little bit. But um, when he got to Rome, he wrote his letter to the Ephesian church. He wrote Ephesians during his imprisonment in Rome. Now upon his release, he returned to Ephesus and installed Timothy as the pastor. So Timothy is now going to be the pastor at Ephesus, and Paul had to continue on to Macedonia. And that's where he sat down and he wrote this letter, this book that we have of 1 Timothy. So you think about Paul, he had pastored this church, he'd visited many times, he knew the challenges, he knew the people there, and I can just imagine as he left Timothy behind and he went on to Macedonia, all these things are going through his mind about what he needs to tell Timothy, about how he needs to encourage him. So I can just see him sitting down once he got to Macedonia to put all this down on paper and get it to him. Now at this point in his life, Paul's probably in his 60s. Timothy's in his 30s. Paul's not in good health. I mean, basically he was stoned to death in Lystra. Um, Paul writes about having a thorn in the flesh that hindered him. We know from other places in his writings that he, um, he had to have people uh, help transcribe his letters because he couldn't see. His eyesight was failing. So Paul had all this going on and this helped to humble him and it drew him closer to the Lord. Uh, and you see, uh, you see this reflected in, in his letters and in his writings. Now, 1 Timothy is mainly concerned with false teaching and false teachers that had sprung up within the church. Uh, we also see a lot of instructions given to the church about elders and deacons. There are instructions uh, given concerning women in the church. Uh, there's also uh, instructions about caring for widows, um, personal instructions for Timothy. But the main concern seems to be uh, with false teaching. And I know, just like on Sunday mornings, they're trying to do the Route 66 where they're doing one book of the Bible every Sunday morning. Um, trying to go through a whole book and figure out what you're going to... Uh, what you're going to hit on is, it's, uh, I guess it's like trying to get a sip of water out of a fire hydrant. You know what I mean? Uh, it's difficult. But let's, let's read a little bit. If y'all have your Bibles, let's uh, go to 1 Timothy. And we're going to read a little bit in the first chapter there. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of our God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy... My true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, Paul introduces himself as an apostle. And one thing I saw in a commentary studying up on this, if this were just strictly a private letter written to Timothy, who they are the closest of companions, he probably didn't have to tell Timothy that he was an apostle. So this kind of shows us that Paul knew that this would be circulated. He knew that this letter would, would uh, go to more than just Timothy, and he writes it accordingly. Uh, verse 3, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now this is one of our key verses tonight. Is Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, 
but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And skipping down to verse 18, he tells Timothy, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So that's, the end of that chapter is kind of frightening to me. Um, And you think about uh, God's word, we'll have God's word forever. So you think about Timothy and Paul and all these heroes of the faith, even Priscilla and Aquila that were left in charge of the church at Ephesus. Their names are there forever. And then you think about Hymenaeus and Alexander. We will forever have them as examples uh, of people that made a shipwreck of their faith and apparently were blasphemers. So I would hate for my name to end up in that place. (laughs) Um, And again, talking about Paul being an apostle. Paul handed them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. I mean, this is probably something that um, would be something that only an apostle could state that he could do. It's not something um, something that we would see now. As the office of apostle, of course, is closed. We don't have those now. On to chapter 2, Paul's going to give instructions on prayer and women in the church. And we'll just read through that, those 15 verses real quick. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for, for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in the faith and love and holiness with self-control. So, we're looking at that and... Certainly in today's world, these are controversial scriptures. Um, As I looked at this, though, a lot of times Paul is considered, you look at this and you think Paul's really being harsh, um, that he's not being good, uh, his treatment of women. But then the, the more I looked and I was digging into Ephesus and what was going on there. And we look at this temple that was built to Diana. 
And I didn't really find any concrete uh, description of what was going on there, but I, I did. Apparently, there was a lot of um, a lot of the worship for Diana involved fertility. Um, there were prostitutes that worked or that were involved in the worship in the temple. And women would go to worship Diana and they would uh, try to get blessings for bearing children. And you had all of these things going on. So you can just imagine as, as, the, as the church is being built up and you're having converts and you've got people coming into worship that have previously been over at Diana's temple, uh, there's no telling what was going on. And I think maybe that plays into how Paul had to address, because Paul had spent so much time there before he wrote this to Timothy. He He had pastored that church for three years. So he knew the lay of the land and he knew what was going on. And I just think that that really uh, plays into his instructions for women. That we can't just take that as a blanket, like every time a woman comes into the church, she's not allowed to speak. You know what? By one side of the coin, we can't look at Scripture, some of which, you know, like Old Testament and whatnot that was written thousands of years ago, We can't just go look at that and apply it literally to the church today because we have to look at who wrote it, who it was written to, and what the purpose of it was. But on the other side of the coin, that doesn't give us liberty to just dismiss everything that's written uh, as if it doesn't apply. But certainly we need to be discerning when we look at this. And uh, hopefully we are able to make sense of this and apply it as the Lord intends to our lives and to our church. So, another thing that I, as I thought about this, that I wrote down, um, he talks about women um, being modest and operating with self-control. And what what occurred to me um, is when we are in worship, the, we should be, the focus has got to be Jesus. The focus of our worship has got to be the Lord Jesus. We don't need to draw attention to ourselves. Um, and you see so many scriptures that, that play into this where Jesus says, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. Or John the Baptist, he says, he, speaking of Jesus, must increase and I must decrease. And I think that's something good for us to, to always uh, keep on our minds is that our focus has got to be Jesus and not necessarily ourselves or what people are wearing or how, how people look in church. Um, and then we look at, as you read through First Timothy, you've got all these instructions that Paul is giving Timothy on how to deal with people in the church and how to uh, deal with the false teachers and, and all of these things. And you, you have the, we're about to look at chapter 3 where we have these qualifications for overseers, for deacons, deacons' wives. And um, um, again, I thought with the children, we've, we've been studying through the Old Testament and we came through Exodus and, and uh, into Judges and, and all that. And as, the, as Moses led the people out, of Egypt, these people have been in slavery for say 300 years and under the rule of the Egyptians and now they're out on their own. They did not know how to act at all. So when you read through Leviticus and you read through Deuteronomy and you've got all of these rules and regulations and laws, uh, there was a purpose for that because they, they show us God's character. And it, it helps the people to know who God is. Um, but people, people need to know how to act. And we see the same kind of a comparative thing here with everything that Paul is telling to Timothy. So let's look through chapter 3. 
we've got qualifications for overseer. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1. This saying, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So again, as I looked at that, I, um, and this is just my crazy way of thinking, but we do, uh, my business, we do installation work of commercial exercise equipment. And most of the stuff that we get in, it's in boxes, and it's, the majority of it's built in China. So this stuff has to be built and boxed in China, and then it goes on a container ship and comes across the water. It ends up in a port, you know, either on the east or west coast, and then gets trucked to us, and then we're cutting that box open. And what do you find in the box? Because it's been through all this salty air and moisture. Y'all ever see these little packs of the, I think it's called desiccant? You know what I'm talking about? So every time we open something up, there's a bunch of those packs in there. And when you pick that pack up, what does it say on it? Do not eat. Now, why does it say that? What? Why do they put that on there? Because someone ate it. Because somebody at some point ate it. Who, why? Why would they do that? So as I was reading the, the qualifications for overseers, I'm thinking to myself, a lot of these things, I mean... We would just take it for granted that he shouldn't be a drunkard or lover of money or quarrelsome. So I guess at some point we had overseers that were drunks and had multiple wives and couldn't teach. Anyway, the, uh, <laughs> as I go through that list, that's what, that's what came to my mind. But uh, likewise, in, with deacons, verse 8, they must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. And that seems to be a common thing that we're going we're gonna to look at in a little bit is uh, the subject of greed and love of money. Um, and as we skip down, it talks about deacons' wives. Likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, as we move into chapter 4, we're, again, as in chapter 1, um, Paul's going to talk about false teachers. So looking at verses uh, 1 through 5, now the Spirit expressly says that in the later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created, to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So, if we look at that section of scripture, it's very similar to what I was referring to earlier uh, over in Acts chapter 20. And this is, where, uh, this is where Paul requests a meeting with the elders of the Ephesian church. 
And I just want to, you don't necessarily have to turn, I'm going to read through it real quick. So verse 29 in Acts 20, he's, this is Paul speaking to the elders of the Ephesian church. And this is prior to Timothy, okay? This is when Paul was uh, on his way to be imprisoned in Rome. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So this is, um, this is Paul. He's warning the Ephesian elders and then he's warning Timothy pretty much the same. And I find it interesting that the probably the most destructive threats to the church usually come from within. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get in chapter 6. So, picking up back up in verse 6 on chapter 4. And he's telling Timothy, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set believers an example in set but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, and faith, and purity. Now see that would be another obstacle that Timothy would have to overcome is his youth. So he from what I can tell, Timothy's probably in his early 30s, and I'm sure there are many men in the church that are much older than him, so he's got to know how to address and correct these men and show respect to them, but also he's got to stay true to Christ, true to the scriptures, and, and be a pastor. Um, Chapter 5. Chapter 5 deals a lot with behavior among church members. There are a lot of instructions in there for the church, and there's a lot of emphasis on widows. Um, I'm not going to read through it. Basically, he's telling Timothy that if you have widows that are older, that have no family, then the church should care for them. But what he's trying to encourage and cultivate is that if there are widows that have family members, encourage their family members to take care of them. Uh, and apparently, he wouldn't be saying this unless there was a problem there. And he says the younger widows, it would be better for them if they would remarry. So, that's pretty much uh, chapter 5. I wanted to have more emphasis on chapter 6 because I really want to look at this false uh, teaching aspect. So turn over to chapter 6 and let's read through that. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So Paul is addressing slaves and masters here. And it's really hard for us to, to uh, relate to this. Of course, Paul is not uh, condoning or approving of slavery. It's just simply how the world worked at that point. 
Um, so he's telling, telling the bond servants, the slaves, regard your masters, and if they're both believers, even though you're brothers, he's still in authority over you. Uh, picking up there, here at verse 3, he says, Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. So this is Paul sugarcoating things, right? I mean, Paul, <laughs> he's always very direct. He is all business. Um, he has an unhealthy craving, speaking of, the, speaking of the false teacher. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. So I'd like to contrast that a little bit. Uh, he says there at the end of verse 5, speaking of the false teachers, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So where do we see that today? We have what's called the health and wealth movement. Um, just turn on your TV. You'll see these televangelists and they are exploiting Jesus, exploiting the scriptures for their own gain. They are trying to enrich themselves by presenting a what Paul would call a different gospel, a different doctrine. Now we look at verse 6. Paul says but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Um, a verse that comes to my mind there. And I guess, I guess I'll read on. I want to include verses 9 and 10 in this before I get started. But, uh, he says, picking up in verse 8, But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And I would, I would submit to you that that is probably the most misquoted verse in the Bible. What, what does everybody, especially people that don't read the Bible, but say unbelievers, how do they quote this verse? Money is the root of all evil. Exactly. So what you have is, especially, you know, especially politicians love to pit different people groups against each other and it works really well to pit people that don't have money against people that have money and they talk about paying your fair share and all of this stuff so this is one of these verses that they use that they want to portray that having money is an evil thing but that's not what Paul is telling us here is it he says verse 10 for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. And a, a verse comes to mind out of James where James says, Howl for your miseries, O rich man. And, you know, as I'm, as I'm reading this, it, my mind draws back to uh, one of my favorite scriptures and if you don't mind I want you to turn there so we can read it together it's uh, Proverbs chapter 30 verses 8 and 9 so take me a minute to get there with this thing 
Proverbs chapter 30, uh, verses 8 and 9. So, the author here writes, Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or, lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So, what we see there. Remember the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. He's writing here, feed me with the food that is needful for me. He doesn't want to be full or be rich and have no needs and say, who is the Lord? And forget who the Lord is. And he doesn't want to be poor and be tempted to steal and profane God's name. So that's, that's what came to my mind when, uh, when I'm looking at that scripture about the love of money. Um, it is a blessing from the Lord that we would be content. And, and I did not look up the scripture reference, but Paul does write. He says, I have learned to be content. And that should be our prayer, is that the Lord would give us contentment with what we have and that we would be thankful for what he gives us because he gives us what we need. It's it's good that he doesn't give us what we want, right? Um, So I want to kind of focus in on the false teaching aspect of this. Um, And I was talking to Brad about this uh, before we came in here. As I studied this, I'm, I'm looking at the book of Ephesians, and I'm looking at 1 Timothy, and you can go over in Acts and get kind of a chronology of what's going on here, and even to the point to where this church in Ephesus, uh, late, late in the Apostle John's life, John ends up being an overseer of these churches in Asia Minor in this region. And I I think, you know, I didn't just nail this down, but I think John was also pastored this church at some point uh, before he was exiled to Patmos. But you can, you know, John wrote the book of Revelation. And Revelation chapter 2, there are letters written to seven churches there. And the the church at Ephesus is one of those churches. And if you go read that, the church at Ephesus is commended for their discernment in concerning false teachers, and it, it says uh, false apostles. So we can see that Paul's and Timothy's work here was not in vain. Now, they were also indicted in that letter because they left their first love, which was, which was Jesus. So, but it, it is just, well, like I was talking with Brad, it's amazing... To look at the Bible, and you start out in 1 Timothy, and then you're going over here, we can look at the book of Ephesians, where Paul wrote all these instructions directly to the church. You've got these instructions to Timothy. We go back to Acts, and we see the, the interaction between Paul and the elders of the church at Ephesus. And, you know, you can draw out the timeline of how all these things happened, and then even looking at at what's in Revelation, it is amazing that all of these accounts, they all mesh and tie in together perfectly, and they all complement each other. There are no mistakes there. There are no, no contradictions. And you've got a variety of authors here written over so many years of time. This could only be done under the direction of the Holy Spirit. And it is just, when you dig into this, it is just... Awesome. So I, I would encourage y'all to go uh, to go read that. But I want to say a few things about um, about the false teachers. Um, one thing that occurred to me 
when I was looking at this is, you know, we talked a little bit about the worship of Diana, and you've got Gentiles that are coming into the church, so you've got Gentiles coming in, the church is probably made up of a lot of Jews, and prior to Jesus, they did not all get along at all. So there's, it's got to be a difficult situation to keep the peace among all these people. Uh, in chapter 4, the false teachers are described as um, trying to enforce these dietary laws and rules and regulations. And that's, you've got to figure that that's the Jewish people doing that because they're, when you go back into Leviticus and you, you look at, their, at the Old Testament, uh, there's so many rules and regulations about what's clean and what's unclean. But at some point, God declared all things clean. And then Paul uh, reinforces that and says it's to be uh, taken with thanksgiving. So let's go back to chapter 1. And I want to point some things out here. Um, and I, I told you this was one of our key scriptures that we wanted to look at. In verse 8 in chapter 1, he says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So what's he getting at there? If you are, and really, not just to say Jewish, but if you, pretty much any other religion in the world except for Christianity, it's works-based. Basically, you are working for your salvation. And what they do in this situation is they take the law like a club and beat you over the head with it. So, and, you know, I've heard Pastor Tim say many times, he wishes sometimes that he were Arminian so that he could, you know, make people feel guilty about losing their salvation and uh, put them on a guilt trip to get them back in church kind of thing. But, but uh, the law is good if used lawfully. So... And then it goes on and gives us a list that he tells us that uh, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners. And we saw that with Jesus, right? Jesus said he didn't come here for the righteous. He came here for sinners. And Jesus says it's not uh, the people that are well that need a physician. It's the sick that need a physician. And this was an indictment against the Pharisees because the Pharisees were those self-righteous people that thought they could keep the law. They were fooling themselves, you know, fooling the people around them. Um, they condemned Jesus for spending time with sinners. So we see in verse 15, Paul reminds us, he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul says he is the chief of sinners. He has come a long way from being that self-righteous Pharisee that was holding everybody's coat while they were stoning Stephen to death. Um, so as we look at the law, what What's the purpose of the law? What do you think? Joe, what's, what's the law for? Galatians says it was a, a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Yes. I, I think the law is completely misunderstood by so many people, especially unbelievers that they look at the Ten Commandments and they, which the Ten Commandments sum up the law. And they look at that as if these are rules that we've got to keep. But can the law save you? No. So does that mean the law is bad? 
No, the law is not bad. As Joe said, the purpose of the law, we are to take the law and we use it like a mirror. The law shows us ourselves. It, the law reveals God's character and it shows us it's, the point of the law is not for me to keep the law. The point, the point of the law is to show me that I can't keep the law. It shows us that we're lost, that we're without hope, that we are condemned. The law directs us to the cross. The law is what makes the gospel the good news. Um, you've probably heard the saying, you can't get somebody saved until you get them lost. So, over the years, we've used many, many, many different uh, tracks and different things to share the gospel, especially when we're on mission trips. Um, we started using the way of the master, and a lot of you, I'm sure, have, are familiar with that. But that is so effective when you take somebody and ask them if they're a good person, and most people will say, oh yeah, yeah, I'm a good person, of course. And then you start taking them through the Ten Commandments. You don't get very far until the look on their face is completely different. And the law is showing them that they are not good, not at all. Um, so, I wanted to touch on that. Um, there is so much more that could be said about this book and about these things that are, that are emphasized. But that's where I'm going to leave it. Um, I hope that's piqued your interest. I hope you'll go back and read this and see how it ties in so well with uh, Ephesians and uh, in Acts. Uh, it's really amazing see how all that works, how they complement each other, and how they reveal Christ. So uh, I appreciate y'all having me, and uh, I'm going to pray, and then Joel will come back up. So, Dear Father, thank you, Lord, for our time together. I thank you, Lord, for your word. Uh, I pray, Lord, that you would change us according to your word, Lord, that you would convict us of our sin, uh, Father, that you would draw us near to you. Uh, thank you for the time here together, and I pray for each one as they go their way this evening. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.